Well, many of you all would know or recognize that this particular church and many churches around town like it are direct offsprings of what is called the Great Reformation of the 1500s. Now, when people think about the Reformation and pertaining to church history, they, uh, how they think about the Reformation came about, they imagine a couple of religious nuts or zealots uh, who got others to blindly follow them in order to seemingly topple the Church of Rome. One reformer wrote that God does not destine us to a quiet life here below, but he calls us to peace on the part of Christ Jesus and calls us to war on a part of the world. He calls us to suffer because of his word. And God certainly did a great work through many of these men and women who helped reform the church and help bolster others come to faith uh, and toward repentance in Christ because of understanding what the Scripture says. They, God certainly did a work in them and changed them. He converted them. And then we see, understandably, that he placed them in a position of power. But this power wasn't necessarily knowledge. It wasn't that these guys were just smarter than anyone else in the 1500s. The, this power was their understanding of what God had said to his people in his word, the, the gospel of God through the testimony of God to then the people of God. His very word was their power. The reformers were swept up by God. We see this tremendously where he revealed himself to them in amazing ways, but in a consistent way through his word, where he gave them fuel and life in order to die, where centuries of influence would come after them. Now, over six centuries ago, these glorious truths that these reformers held on to and wanted others to know, they, these glorious truths weren't widespread. Uh, the truths of the Scriptures weren't widespread because people weren't allowed legally to read them in their own native language. In England, for example, it was illegal to read the truths of the Bible out loud in your own tongue. Now, our scriptures, which were originally written in Hebrew and Greek and parts in Aramaic, were not allowed to be translated either uh, in anything other than Vulgate Latin, and they could only be read by officers of the church. Now, with this, there was an understanding where a guy named William Tyndale just couldn't stand it any longer. Uh, he intently evangelized the people all over London where he wanted them to be exposed to and to hear about uh, the grace and the mercy of Christ to the point where using the intellect that God given him, gave him, he, he sought out even under um, the, the sword, if you will, of the state to translate the Bible from Latin to where the people in England could hear them. He wanted people to know God through his word. You may even hear about his legacy today that the Tyndale translators, where they go into all parts of the world seeking to translate the scriptures into people's native tongues. It was his driving passion for people, common people like you and me, to be able to read in their own language what was formally bound in Latin, and it ultimately cost him his life. Now, we can think about stories of people like William Tyndale or maybe even other people from our own church who sought to evangelize those in a different tongue. But uh, when time was spent, we recognize meditating on Scripture, consuming the truths of God's revealed uh, word, we become recognizing that it wasn't just William who became more like Christ, and it wasn't just maybe your spiritual hero who became or who grew in godliness, but we recognize that anyone who places themselves under the authority and inspiration of Scripture will become slowly and surely more like Jesus altogether. Our growth in holiness is not bound by following another form. Our growth in holiness is through God's very word. 
And so it was people like these giants of the faith who sought none other than to help people understand what God's word really meant. Now, in 1978, there was a collection of about 300 pastors who got together in Chicago because the Bible was under attack from its authority and its usefulness. People thought that the Bible wasn't as useful as it once was. There was, there was modernism seeking in in order to destroy the, the power of the text. So these men all gathered, professors and pastors and, and lay people in Chicago in 1978 and, and formed what is known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, where they set out to define what Scripture says to be true and then sign their name by saying, we fully believe that the Bible is absolutely true and all that it intends for us to grow in holiness. And one of the things that they said is the Holy Spirit, the Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. It goes on to say, being holy and verbally God-given Scripture or our Bibles is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it says and states about God's act in creation, about the events of the world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving, God's saving grace in individual lives. Now, you and I can read statements like this, hear about these reformers of the faith, and be stirred up towards great vigor with these people centuries before us, we recognize that they understood that these bold truths needed to be taught and proclaimed to everyone. We live in a world that needs to understand who Christ is. We live on a daily basis, even those of us who call ourselves Christians, we live on a daily basis recognizing that we need to continue to understand all that God says about himself. Why? Because our scripture passage this morning brings up the question, where Jesus looks at people who he's taught now for several days or even months, possibly even a year at this point, and says, do you understand what I've just said? The, the tension that you and I face at different times throughout history, the, the tension that you and I face is we have to replace ourselves under the authority of Scripture and ask, do we understand what this text says? To such a degree, do we understand who Jesus is altogether? We have before us the truth that Jesus was telling them then and toward their faces. Think about it. What Jesus was really saying to this audience, we have that very truth before us in God's holy word. And with this, I hope you'll understand two things from our passage this morning. Where Jesus asks this basic question, do you understand? Two things from our passage this morning. And they could be seen as two separate things, but keeping them all together, uh, they're carefully placed together by Matthew in order to present Christ as king and bringing in his kingdom and fulfilling all of the Old Testament. Jesus, in our passage, wants you today to do something. Jesus wants you to do something. It's not just like this faith that we need to take no action on. He is calling you, us today, to do something. And by doing this thing, you'll be kept from spiritual harm and eternal damnation. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to know who he is and understand who he is. So if you're using the Bible, I'm going to go in through verses 51 through 52, and then Lord willing, 53 through 58 for the rest of the sermon. But here we see that Jesus is calling us to do something. Think of it. The Son of God himself, after saying all kinds of words about the kingdom of heaven, finally looks at his audience and says in verse 51, have you understood all these things. 
J.C. Ryle of London says the mere form of hearing a sermon can profit no one unless he understands what it means. He might just as well listen to a blowing of a trumpet or a beating of a drum. He might as well attend a Roman Catholic service in Latin where he can't understand anything. His intellect, though, must be set in motion. His heart impressed. Ideas must be received into his mind. He must carry off the seeds of new thoughts. Without this, he hears in vain. Jesus is calling us to do something. He says, have you understood all these things? Christ is calling through this question of do you understand? He's calling you to know the transformative meaning of the very words that he has been speaking. For weeks now, he has been demonstrating to us in Matthew's gospel all of these signs and understandings of the very kingdom of God. And before that, he taught what his people, if they would follow him, how they were supposed to live and how they were supposed to act and how they were supposed to worship him according to what he says. And then it's like he turns to them like the, like the professor at the end of the class who's just done a crazy amount of math on the board says, do you understand? And in their case, they said yes. It's so important to see this point clearly because there's so much intentional and accidental ignorance within the church today. Uh, We are a part of the most illiterate uh, generation of church attenders in all of the world. Even people who didn't even have the Bible translated into their own language know more than we know about the scriptures. There are millions who regularly go to worship and think that they have done their job by showing up yet never carry away the reality of the gospel being for their very soul, where they receive an impression of Christ's atoning imputation, or they were turned toward his grace and mercy for the forgiveness of their sins. It's like they go in a fog and leave even more confused. Friends, think about this. When you leave this place around noon, going wherever you go, how quickly, honestly, how quickly do your thoughts and affections turn from Think of it, the glory of God in Christ with the words that we just sung through the words that we have prayed or from the words that you have preached to you. You you go and your affections turn from the glory of God in Christ to then something that truly doesn't matter. How quickly does that happen? I think it's helpful to understand the gravity of this particular text and the tension within it, this, the syntax of this text. Jesus has just given them a plethora of things to hear and consider, and he's genuinely asking, do you understand? And this takes, this takes real thought. This takes pure meditation, where the, where the mind is being exposed as a, as a unit of our faith. In verse 51 through 52, in context, Matthew presents Jesus posing the question after many parables. And in these parables, he presents the kingdom of heaven that has finally arrived to earth. Think of it, the reality of them hoping for the Messiah to come, where the Messiah not only comes, but he says, I am bringing the very kingdom of heaven with me, and it's in your presence. And then he says, do you understand? So obviously, in reading through this, Do you understand, friend here today, what Jesus is saying? The totality of the words that Jesus is putting before you. The same same thrust of the question on those disciples then is the same question that's being asked to you and I today. Do you understand the words that were coming out of his mouth, that were written down and transcribed by others for us so that we can know him and experience of his grace and mercy every day, all of our days? Where do we often go off to? 
We go off to a game or a nap or off to eat, but left behind is the understanding of heaven's kingdom and king who saves sinners from a previous understanding of pain and hell. In verse 51, the disciples who heard Christ's word question, or who hear Christ's word and question, respond with yes. And I hope today, and each time this church gathers, we're to be careful and courageous with our own soul's consideration of the words of God. Do we understand his truth this day? Friend, watch your soul. Watch over your soul with this question. We're to gather and praise and praise or pray and praise and preach not only in body, but also what's a part of our body is our mind with reasoning. We, we show up and worship with our heart, with our conscience, with our soul, but also with our mind. And let's be quick to ask ourselves, what have I got about the gospel from this sermon? What have I learned about the beauty and the power and the glory of Christ through these 75 minutes? What truths of God have been impressed on my mind? Intellect, no doubt, is not everything to Christianity, but we are both body and soul, spirit and mind. The heart is unquestionably the main point. We see where Jesus pinpoints this issue again and again. The, the issue that all of, our, all of our lives have before us is the position of our heart before a holy God. But the way that the heart is reached, God uses the mind to impart his truth that goes down to the soul to where we then cry out, I need the Savior that I just heard of. The heart is unquestionably the main point, but we see in Scripture that it is the Spirit of God who reaches the heart of man through God's truth going through the mind of man. J.I. Packer says, don't be sleepy, idle, inattentive hearers of God's word. If you are, don't be surprised that you don't know him. If you're not a Christian here today, what I want you to hear is that we are not aiming to be a people who just blindly follow a, a moral ethic. Uh, we, we don't aim to be mindless in, in feeling our way through life. Uh, we understand the caricatures of, you know, bombs maybe falling from the sky, but, you know, we're just singing praise and worship music outside like it's no big deal. No, we, we feel just like everyone else feels, but we know that we can think and understand and hear of the reality of God toward us. It involves the mind understanding who God is, who we are, and what we need of God for ourselves, and understanding that God has provided what we need in the person of His Son, through the very person who preached the words that you and I have before us in the Gospel of Matthew. So, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, friend, uh, for whatever reason you're here today, our scriptures are also clear that, that you can understand the things that we say that we understand or aspire to, to fully grasp. If you call upon God to open your mind to the reality and glory of his very son that we cling on to. What we have is not out of reach from you. God says that in the same way that we receive it, you also can receive it. That if you confess to the Lord and place your faith in Him, that your mind will be opened to the reality and glory of His Son. So what has God called us to do in Christ? He has called us to know, to know who He is, to understand who He is. But then under this first point, what, what does Christ call us also to do, he has also called us to not just know, but also to show what we have understood. 
Christ has called us to not just know and understand who he is, but also show what we know from the inside out. Jesus doesn't just ask us a question and accept their answer. He actually gives us another picture and then another parable of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is the final parable in the section of Matthew chapter uh, 13. Read, read with your eyes uh, verses 52, or verse 52 where it says, And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So here Jesus tells us what, what the kingdom of heaven not only will look like for us, but also what it involves his very followers within that kingdom to do. He has a clear picture in mind of the personality of those who understand what he says. If I understand who Jesus is, what, how then do I act? Or what am I to do with what my understanding of who he is? Those who know are to show what they know. That's what he says. Those who know are to show what they know. Within the kingdom of heaven, disciples or followers of the king understand the grace of the kingdom to such a degree that they show and tell of all of their treasures, both what are seen as old and new. That's, that's the picture that's being given here. But, but the parable also calls them a scribe uh, or what is known from in, in an Old Testament way, a teacher of the law, meaning they're someone who's been taught something and then they will then go and teach someone else. Clearly, Jesus says that when following him, you'll act like a scribe. That, that's what it means to, to play your part in the kingdom of God. You have the personality of a scribe who's been taught things, and then you will teach other things. And scribes then, in that time, weren't quiet about their acquired knowledge. I don't know about you, but anytime I learn something that may seem even small, what's the first thing that you do when you learn something? You want to go tell someone, look, I, I just learned how to do this. I remember the first time I changed the oil in my truck, Oil all over myself. I called everyone I knew, and I changed the oil in my truck. I didn't put any oil in it, but I got the oil out of it. And I thought that was cool, even though it was just a screw that you unscrew. But we tell people about things when we learn them. And this is the, the, this is the activity of a scribe. These people weren't quiet about their acquired knowledge. They broadcast them. Uh, they prod, broadcast this truth to everyone they can then teach. We see here kind of an understanding of, of what a wise person looks like in the book of Proverbs. You know, your desire to be wise or a man of wisdom or a woman of wisdom. What does a wise person do? We see there in Proverbs, I think, uh, chapters 1 and 2, where a wise person receives knowledge from the Lord, applies it to their life directly, but then teaches or applies it to another person's life. That's what discipleship looks like or a discipler looks like. I receive something from God. I apply it to my own life, so you might think horizontally, but then I actually bestow that wisdom on someone else. We see that this is what a scribe would do, a wise person would do, and in the kingdom of heaven, this is what a Christian ought to do. In following God, we are not quiet about all that we have known. And within this parable, this is where you see that parables can either be like a, like a slingshot bullet or like an onion where you can continue to, to pull things away. This, is, this parable would be like an onion, where even though it's a, it's a short one, you can peel back layers and layers and layers of its teaching. Jesus shows not only what a scribe is, not only what a participant is in the kingdom of heaven, but also kind of some boundaries of what it means to show and tell within that kingdom. What, what do we say to other people with the acquired knowledge that we have? Treasures that are old and new. Those are the boundaries of telling people about the kingdom of heaven. It looks like you seek out treasures that are old and new that you have been given and you show them to everyone else. 
Now, just quickly, this is easily and obviously. What is, what is old and new? What are these treasures that are old and new? Easily and obviously, they're referring to the new revelation from Jesus and how it fulfills also the old promises of the Old Testament. So you could say today, you could say, what are we to show? Well, the totality of the scriptures, the new and the old. You can think of the promises that were made in the Old Testament and how those promises were fulfilled in the New Testament. When Jesus was opening up their eyes to the understanding of the truths that they should have known for themselves, where was he taking all that truth from? The very verses of what we have in the Old Testament today. That the new revelation was actually an understanding of the inspiration of the old. Now, some interpreters of this passage, you might think, I'm not a scribe. I don't want to be a scribe. I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to do that. Some interpreters of this passage place weight on the scribe part and see that this is great instruction for future pastors and teachers of the Bible. And there are a lot of commentators that do this. And I've been encouraged while studying for this sermon by those exhortations from these great guys. There's, There's a lot out there on the training of pastors specifically through this text. And it's been great and bolstering to me to be reminded of what is my call? What is my job? What is my role here with you all? It is presenting the treasure of things old and new. Except, and however, I actually don't see a special office of scribe that, that Matthew is transcribing here from Jesus' own words. I don't, I don't think the scribe that it's talking about here, you could say it's not a capital S scribe. It's talking about all of the followers of Jesus in general. I think Matthew is thinking of Jesus' disciples in mass but using language like other scribes to inform how they're to act as those who were bestowed with wisdom and understanding of the law and perhaps some measure of prophetic inspiration. His elaborate, Matthew's elaborate comparison of using Jesus' words here describes a house owner. Uh, You can imagine for yourself rummaging through maybe a garage or an attic or a warehouse in the backyard, finding a variety of old and new items and wanting to present those as perfect together in value. Wanting to demonstrate, look at all that I've been given, and and let me package it together, old and new, and show it to you so you can understand the true value of everything that I've inherited or been given from someone else. Clearly, a disciple, in sharing to others of the gospel, he now understands, should draw out the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures, things of old, while also showing how they are fulfilled and applied in the kingdom age, things that are new. It's, it's what an ambassador of the king does. They, they share the glory of the entire kingdom, not just part of it. And I think as we've been going through Matthew, I, I hope you've seen kind of the beauty of what Matthew is intentionally doing as, as, as showing that Jesus is intentionally demonstrating to the people of Israel that he is the new and better Moses. And so there have been things along the way where the more you understand of the Pentateuch, and the more we've been walking through those and going back, using those cross-references, going back there, the more that that bolsters and builds up the totality of all that Jesus is doing there. He's not just going up a hill. He's going, he's going way deeper in meaning than just going up a hill. He is showing that he is the true and better thing that they've been waiting for. Over and over again, we see Matthew doing this. And in the same way, you and I ought to be very good, very precise, and very helpful to other people by demonstrating and showing them the treasure that we have been given that is both old and new. It's commonplace for people to think that we should just rely on the New Testament. What people just need is maybe the book of John, and then they can understand the king and his kingdom. 
And what Jesus is saying, man, give them all you got. Now, the application of this uh, to, to me seems somewhat aimless. <laughs> I can just, you can just go on and on and on and think of what, is it, what does it look like for a Christian to, to showcase or show off the things that are old and new. But I want to do, I want to do two things, use two uh, application kind of connections. One way to see an application of this text is I want you to think eternally for a second. Think eternally. Think of the reality of a man who is rummaging through a house and is eager to show those things new and old. Now, most of you know that my dad has terminal cancer, and we're all at the beginning of an unknown timeline, though it, it feels very short all of the sudden because we thought what was be 20 or 30 years may not be 20 or 30 years. So, of course, he and I talk about his end. We did so even on the phone on Friday. And I don't know what I'll be like, but I know that I will preach his funeral. I don't know what I'll be like in the moment, (laughs) but I know I'm getting up here and saying something. And I'm humbled that I get to preach every week to him when he's not homesick until he finally goes home forever. I never thought that this would be part of my pastoral ministry to, to be the preacher of my dad's own funeral, much less to be the preacher of my dad's final days in life. But it is, and it's great. It's a lot of pressure, (laughs) but it's wonderful. And I've done a lot of funerals since coming to Enid, and I didn't expect to do those either on that kind of rate. But between doing funerals for babies and even burying our own, and doing funerals for elderly saints who have been a part of this church for decades, I I think uh, that funerals can show themselves to be very, very sad, and they ought to be sad. In around 15 funerals that I've done in the last two years, they all must be sad. But some are sad for two reasons. All funerals are sad because someone has died. Death is an awful thing. Death is not how things were supposed to be. It's sad. All funerals should be sad. It drives me nuts when people get up and they want to make this about some happy-go-lucky time. And it's like, someone had to die for all of us to be here. It's okay to cry. But funerals are also sometimes sad for how people uh, often remember those that they love. People are oftentimes seriously sacrilegious when they remember or sometimes talk about their loved ones. Think about it. What are the things that you want to be said of you at your own funeral? And we very often see people say some of the silliest things, don't they? Maybe they're just caught up in the moment. Maybe they don't know what to say. But they say some of the silliest, though heartfelt things. And I I don't know what I'll say at my dad's funeral. I've thought about it a lot, but I don't know what I'll ultimately say. But I know the comparison I'll give. He's a man who's been given great treasure. And at least to me, he was like a scribe who loved God's truth and who loved showing the glory and value of that old and new treasure. Friends, that's the gravity of this text here. What What does a Christian do? You know, what are we to be like in this full life that God has given us? You and I have opportunity to do so much stuff on a daily basis. And some of it is really cool and some of it is just pointless. But what is it that we're called to do with the knowledge that we've been given? It's to show to anyone the old and the new. This text has those of us who understand the message of Christ anticipate the day where Christ will be in the heavens and we're to be housekeepers of his kingdom. We'll, we'll be those who have. And it's there that we'll call to hold out the things of his glory. The gospel has us 
being given grace in Christ. New life. Our new life in Christ is like a treasure beyond what we could ever put a value on. And in response, because it was brought to us not by work or our own desire, our response as a believer is seeing eternally the perspective of others who are spiritually so impoverished as we once were. Our response is to know grace in such a way that we now hold it out and ask God that they would be granted the understanding that we have been given freely because of his grace. Christian, do you think of the grace that you've been given by grace? And do you think eternally, when you look out or around and see many others, Do you understand the value of the kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom of God? Matthew poses the question through a series series of parables, do you understand his words? And if you say yes, do you act like this final parable who seeks to show and tell? Another way to see an application of this text is thinking about the here and now. So first, first one is the eternal perspective. Let's think about the here and now. A couple of weeks ago, a sermon was preached at a large pastor's conference in California where the charge was continually given by all the sermons there that we are to be unashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel alone that has the message for salvation. So you think of it, the the picture here of a pastor's conference, which typically pastor's conferences are just, you know, tips and tricks of the trade, you know, do this and you'll love your church or do this and Maybe your church will love you or, you know, whatever. But in this particular pastor's conference, it was just the gospel over and over and over again. I don't know if you've ever seen a professional baseball pitcher warm up. It's kind of a surprising thing to see a professional baseball pitcher warm up. It begins as a subtle, very meek process. A phone call is made between a dugout and a bullpen that's 400 feet away. And then two guys, grown men, go out there where then they stand about 10 feet apart and they work on the wrist first where they just flip the ball to each other a couple of times and then it becomes an elbow slot thing. So you start warming up the arm a little bit more. Maybe you go over the top more and you start walking back to the point where you are now standing on a mound, though not, full, not throwing full speed, but warming up to where your body can then throw. But then at some point, You, like a racehorse, gallop onto a field and you know that that batter has been waiting for five or ten minutes for you to throw your best at him. You can't just throw a change up. You've got to bring the high heat that even he who has been waiting on you cannot handle. And a preacher stood at a pulpit a couple of weeks ago as if taking the mound and about 50 minutes into his sermon, he looked at all 5,000 men in attendance and reminded them of this, that in the beginning God created everything and it was good. And God put man in the garden in order to keep the garden that God had given him, and he gave man command over the garden. And God held out to that man that if he had perfect, perpetual obedience towards him, then he would give him full and eternal life if he kept it, and death if he didn't. And if he didn't keep it, He would then be banished, and this man didn't keep it because he ate of the fruit that he was forbidden to have. And because he ate, because of that one man who sinned, sin entered the world, and death through sin came to all of us. Everyone born from that man through ordinary generation inherited that man's sin nature. And because of that sinful nature, sins proceed from it. You think of of that 
inheritance of sin, but then the now action of sin. And our world is broken because of this sin that continues to go out, where we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And we know that he's holy, and we know that he's righteous, yet at the same time we crave justice. But the problem is that if God gives us justice, then we die. And so God, in his goodness and in his mercy, sent forth his own son, who was not born of ordinary generation, but was born of a virgin. Yes, the preacher said the virgin birth matters. Why? Because if the son was born of ordinary generation, he's born in sin. But because he's not born in ordinary generation, he is not born in sin. He is clean of sin. His record is clean. And he keeps his record clean by obeying God's law perfectly. And because he's fully God and fully man, he then obeys the law of God on our behalf. And in his act of obedience and in his passive obedience, God made him who knew no sin to then be sin for us. Where we recognize that all we, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way. But God laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all and Christ died for that sin once for all, the just for the unjust, where God then imputes our sinfulness onto him so that he nails our sinfulness to the tree. Where Christ would die, that's where we were called to die. And there Christ dies, but would then rise on the third day for the justification so that we may be declared righteous to the ends of the earth. But there's another imputation The speaker went on to say, the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness is actually imputed onto us so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Christ Jesus so that all of those who come to Christ may enter in so that all of those who put faith in Christ might be saved, but not only saved, but also sanctified because Christ is the firstborn of many brothers. We're justified and we're adopted into the family of God. And being sanctified, whereas we are his children, we begin to build a family resemblance, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And by this, we're further sanctified through this life, by the very same gospel that saves us, until one day, as if there's not just that good news, when all is said and done, we're not just saved from the penalty of sin that Christ gave us on the cross. We're not just saved from the power of sin, but one day we'll be glorified and saved from the mere presence of sin. And he looks at them and he says, that's the gospel that we preach. That's the gospel that I need. And all 5,000 men just erupted in noise, not because of his speech, not because of how powerful it felt in the morning, not because of what they were hearing was something that they understood before, but because it was something that they had understood and need to continually understand to give them joy in this life for the next one. The gospel that they heard is the gospel that they need every day in the here or now. It's not just something that you claim onto and then live the rest of your life. You go back to the water. Friend, remind yourself, of Psalm 41, where the deer pants for flowing streams. The panting of a deer is not just because he is tired, though he is. The panting of the deer is because he is running from his enemy. And one thing that happens when a deer pants, like you and I, you are breathing out carbon dioxide, which has a scent that flies from it. So as this deer is running away from his enemy, he is actually setting a trail where his enemy can finally find him and tell 
he submerges himself in the good water that we need to drink from every day. There is a fountain full of love that ought to consume our hearts every day. J.C. Ryle says, I am convinced that the world needs no new gospel. The world needs nothing new, but something that is continually bold, full, and unflinching. What the world needs are the truths from old paths. New feet on old paths. Okay, now remember here the audience and the circumstance of people who hear Jesus speak this. Remember that, that Jesus is asking them, do they understand? And he said that his disciples who understand will be like a scribe or a homeowner who seeks to share the beauty, the treasure that they've been given. Friends, there are so many of us and there are so many of you, or I'm sorry, there are so many of you who have been here for so long, what seems like forever. You've been a part of this church and you will die in this church and your kids will die in this church. And yet there are so many of you who are here today who will intentionally not be here. And we hope you're not. That means you've graduated. That means you've gone to college. That means you've moved away. That means you've gotten a different career. That means you've retired or whatever. But friends, for those of you who intentionally will not be here in the coming days or years, when you leave, keep before you two desires. The first is the treasure that you've been given. Let it shine wherever you have been placed. But also keep the desire to hear of God's treasured things, both new and old. Wherever you go, align yourself with the same gospel that you first understood. Place yourself under the shared shepherding of men who will teach God's truth through the lens of God's complete and full word, the most abundantly beautiful place you can find yourself in, in anywhere you go, is in the company of a gathered church, the house of God. You think of this guy rummaging through his house, the very house of God who submits itself to God who's revealed himself to you through his holy scripture. Think of all the things that'll make another city attractive. If you were to choose to move there, schools, activities, real estate, friends, accessibility to family or friends, opportunity for growth, but friends, as you go, and a lot of you are sitting over here, but wherever you find yourself sitting, I want to encourage you as you go, consider God's true treasure, old and new. Consider seeing the church as a fundamental primary part of your walk towards Zion so that when you are there, you will recognize the king in all of his glory. Consider that a mainstay as you network and research, consider placing yourself primarily in the company of other believers who ask you regularly, friend, do you understand? Well, I've run out of time and I have six verses left, so we'll pick it up next week. <laughs> um, but as, I, uh, as you think back uh, to the Reformation, where we see people like Tyndale and Luther and Calvin, where they finally, what were they fundamentally aiming to do? These, these men, they wanted to reclaim the ability for you to understand God through his word. Calvin preached every day, every day. The guy was a monster and taught theology in the afternoons. <laughs> every single day, Luther spent time training pastors, translating the Bible, writing treatises on the book of things like Galatians. Tyndale translated the scriptures until he died. And fundamentally, men like these reclaimed the desire for the church to, to seek the people to understand the gospel through worship. And one of the amazing things uh, since the Protestant Reformation, Protestant churches have placed preaching this pulpit 
as a center focal point of the worship service. It's why the pulpit is center and nothing else. We get excited about biblical preaching because of its power. We, we love being challenged and confronted and, and changed by the heralding of God's word. We need good preaching. And in God's grace, he has given us good preaching because even when the preacher falls, we know we can understand him because of a word that speaks to us. It's living and active. Friends, do you understand? Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your truth that does not go out in vain. And we ask that you would speak to us and guide us to understand more of you than ever before. God, open our eyes to the mercy and the goodness of your Son. Open our attention and desire towards the fellowship that you have placed us around. O God, our God, we ask that you would continue to pour into our minds so that our hearts can be opened to your marvelous grace. We pray this. In the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.